Thanks very much, Father Richard. It's a joy to be back here um, uh, to the Aquinas Institute for inviting me to speak and, and for the professional support. I'm very grateful over the last few years and to the whole Blackfriars community for your gracious hospitality. I should also mention uh, two absent people, Ryan Mead, a visiting scholar at the Aquinas Institute who's been of great assistance in getting me here uh, this, this year. And then of course my wife, Hillary, who was with me and the kids here for a semester a couple years ago, who loved our time here and um, is taking care of the kids while I'm away on this Valentine's Day. So. As Father Richard said, the good of human interdependence is the theme of this year's Aquinas Seminar Series. I'd like to address that theme by considering the human person metaphysically, both as an individual and as familial. Or better yet, I wish to show how the human person's individuality is metaphysically bound up with his or her relationality. And my talk will proceed in three parts. In the first, I'll consider Aquinas' views on matter as a principle of individuation. And we'll see how even here, matter is a principle not of sheer difference, but of otherness, namely of oneself in the context of and encounterable by others like oneself. In the second part of the paper, I'll look at some general examples of how our bodiliness contributes to our distinctively human modes of relationality. And these first two parts of the paper will be relatively brief. In the third part, which constitutes the bulk of the talk, I'll focus on the human person as gendered, showing how the man-woman relationship and ultimately the relationship of pregnancy provides us with paradigmatic instances of human interdependence at the metaphysical level. Let's begin then with Aquinas' account of the human being and within it the role of matter as a principle of individuation. Achieving an original and profound synthesis of Aristotle and Plato, Aquinas argues that the human being is a radical unity of spiritual soul and matter. Plato had emphasized the spirituality of the soul, characterized by intellect, yet this whole soul was not truly at home in the physical world. Aristotle had emphasized the form-matter unity of all natural substances, including humans, but he wasn't sure whether the spiritual dimension of the human soul belonged to us individually. Was it rather separable from us at death and part of one generic agent intellect? So for over a thousand years, Christian thinkers tended more toward the Platonic view, focusing on the human soul as immaterial, separable from the body, and oriented toward eternal life. In this light, Aquinas' move was quite striking, showing how the soul is both individually spiritual, but also so connected with matter as to be the very form of the body. In fact, as I've argued here in the past, the human soul and body are qualitatively more unified than the soul and body of other animals, precisely because the human body participates in the transcendent spiritual unity of the soul. This point will be important in my discussion of pregnancy later. Within human nature as a composite of spirit and matter, the soul, more than matter, makes us to be the kind of thing we are. The soul actualizes and shapes our matter to be specifically human. Matter is the principle of potency in us that indicates that we come from others and that at death we will in some way become other substances. There's a material continuity which shows that I came from my parents and that I will become daisies 
or a grizzly bear or something else, depending on the manner of my death. The continuity here doesn't belong primarily to the soul because souls don't literally come out of souls, especially in the case of humans, whose souls are spiritual realities and therefore can only be directly created by God. Matter, on the other hand, is a continuum. It is divisible. Quantity belongs to it as its primary accidental characteristic. And here is where we see what it means to say that matter is the principle of individuation. That is, the kind of thing we are is common to all of us humans. We all share the specific specific nature of being composed of spiritual soul and matter. What allows this nature to exist in more than one instance is the presence of quantity in matter, which is intrinsically divisible indefinitely. Owing to its divisibility, matter can be informed over and over by the same kind of form, thus allowing for many instances of the same nature, in our case, many human persons. We can see here how matter's two roles go hand in hand, namely, the first, that matter allows our coming from parent substances and eventually becoming other substances at death, and second, that matter is the principle of individuation. Matter, in short, is a divisible continuum. As continuum, it points to the continuity between all members of the species. As divisible, it points to the distinctness of each of those members from each other. Aquinas' definition of individual nicely articulates how individuality is only meaningful within a context of continuity. So he says that the individual is an undivided being distinct from others of its own kind. Right, and that second part is important, distinct from others of its own kind. In other words, while the notion of individual denotes a being as distinct as its own self, it only does so by contextualizing the being as within others of its own kind. We could never speak of an individual anything if we didn't imply the presence of others like it. So this in itself is striking and opposed to some modern notions of individuality which see it as characterized sheerly by separation or difference. Aquinas' point is that while relationality implies at least two individuals who can be in relation, it's no less true to say that individuality itself springs from continuity and thus depends on the presence of at least one other in the face of whom one is an individual. I turn now to the second part, which considers some general ways in which human matter especially contributes to relationality. Let's begin by comparing humans with some lesser inanimate substance, like a diamond. Diamond, on the one hand, seems like a very unified substance. It's nearly impossible to divide. And yet we see vividly in diamond, as in all other non-living substances, the sheer continuity of matter. It makes no difference to diamond whether it exists in a million pieces scattered throughout the cosmos or as one big planet-sized mass, which is to say that individuality doesn't really matter in the case of diamonds. In living beings, by contrast, and especially higher animals, and most especially humans, individuality really does matter. The nature of these beings can only exist as individual, with a particular shape and a particular amount within a particular range of size. Moreover, living beings cause their individuation to occur 
They are responsible for the division of matter that allows for individuation in any substance. While diamond has to be divided into individuals by some extrinsic force, living beings reproduce themselves. They literally divide their own matter off in the form of some seed, which then becomes another individual. In humans, of course, this occurs through sexual activity, which is not simply a physical process, but one naturally infused with personal desire, thoughtfulness, and love. And in cases where such elements are lacking, as in a rape, the lack itself is definitive, such that virtually everyone agrees on the evil of such actions. And I'll return to the structures of human procreation. In humans, then, the particular matter or body of the person is central to the individual that one is. This matter is informed by the rational soul such that the soul's characteristic capacities can be actualized and expressed. In our case, we're talking about growth, nourishment, reproduction, walking, sensing, desiring, loving, thinking. In various ways, our bodiliness contributes decisively to all human action. It's not the case, then, that my body is what simply marks me off as separate from you. Rather, my body is part of what makes me separate from you, but my body is also part of what makes me connect with you. We need to take seriously Aquinas' notion of the human being as a spiritual soul informing matter. As spiritual, the soul is radically self-contained, self-present, or simple. Its unity far transcends the unity of any physical reality because it has no parts to be divided. But hand in hand with this unity is the fact that the soul possesses intellect and free will by means of which we can become one with all other realities through knowledge and love. In other words, the greater unity and self-presence of the soul implies not sheer separation, but relationality of a sort far beyond what other animals, plants, and natural substances can have. Now, the human body naturally participates in the soul's being. Even more strongly, we should say that the soul couldn't exist or be effective without the human body, since the body is the soul's natural expression, or even organ, as Aquinas puts it in one passage. So on the one hand, the soul, more than the body, is truly my own and incommunicable to others, just because the soul as spiritual can't morph into anything else. And on the other hand, the soul more than the body is relational and communicative toward others because it sources the capacities of sensation, desire, and love. But the body naturally participates in the soul's being such that the body is, more than all non-human bodies, incommunicable to others, but it is also more than all non-human bodies relational and communicative with others. So two examples. The first is speech. Against the notion that the sphere of thought and consciousness is immensely private, interior, and non-physical, which is partly true, Aquinas' principles entail something more. And this has been well brought out by thinkers like Robert Sokolowski, David Brain, and Alastair McIntyre. Namely, it's truer to say that human reason and consciousness both come from and are fulfilled in communication with others, which can only occur through bodily expressions. Every human infant only comes into its own, rationally speaking, via interaction with others, usually its parents, whose bodies and voices communicate thoughtfulness and love. When we're fully rational, 
We typically get our thoughts clear through the medium of words, either spoken or written. All students know this. You think, oh, I've got my paper all figured out in my head, and then I sit down to write it. It's like, well, <laughs> I guess I don't know what I'm talking about yet. I mean, that's the same with me. Um, so words imply communication with others. Human rationality, then, is not simply a non-physical and solitary affair. Rather, it naturally occurs in bodily and interpersonal action. Another example. The body is naturally social. As McIntyre points out, simple observation of the human body, which is to say the living human body, reveals that its movements typically have a communicative nature, and indeed often a deliberately, intentionally communicative nature. Our speaking, to be sure, but also our gestures and facial expressions are of such a nature that they can be viewed and interpreted, and we naturally realize that they can be, and thus we naturally express ourselves in view of such interpretability. To not do so implies a lack of self-awareness, or worse, a deliberate hostility toward human community. The human as rational animal, then, and as social animal, are really flip sides of the same coin. My rationality is inherently social, and my sociality is inherently rational, and in both cases my bodiliness is crucial. McIntyre also lists health, age, and clothing as aspects of human bodiliness that are naturally communicative. In other words, one's health, or lack thereof, one's age, and one's being clothed are not simply accidental to the person, they naturally communicate something about the person, and the person typically is aware that they so communicate. Now, one aspect of bodiliness that McIntyre does not consider in this context, and to be fair, Aquinas doesn't much consider, is gender or sexuality, which is what I will consider for the remainder of this talk. I'll proceed by articulating five significant aspects of human gender. These elements will be foundational for the argument regarding the relation between human nature and individuality or personhood. But first, two preliminary points. Um, for my purposes, I'm using the term gender not in opposition to biological sex. I do not mean by it primarily the social interpretation or cultural expression of sex. Rather, I use it as a broader term, as synonymous with sex but inclusive of the fact that sex is by nature a biological and a social reality. Second, while my focus here concerns gender and human beings, much of what I say will apply more or less to other animal species. We should keep in mind the fact that for Aquinas, humans are the highest kinds of animals, and as such are in some way the exemplar for other animal species, such that these fall away from but also resemble the human to varying degrees. So five significant aspects of human gender. First, let's approach human gender foundationally from the standpoint of the natural ability to procreate. It's hard to know how else one could approach gender in this sense without at some point running into arbitrary and artificial constructions. Even if we were to begin by considering, say, romantic love as characteristic of human sexuality, and this is a possible starting point, we'd still be presupposing the structures of man and woman in the first place. We'd still presuppose some sense of what these beings are. 
So when considering gender, we're looking foundationally at a particular ability on the part of humans. In Thomas's framework, gender concerns primarily those powers called reproductive or generative. On the one hand, we can't entirely identify gender with the generative powers. It's not as though one is a man or a woman because of one's generative powers. Rather, it's the reverse. One's generative powers come to be actualized as they are because one is a man or a woman. Indeed, biology shows us in increasingly striking ways how gender seems to be written all over our materiality, not just in terms of the XY or XX chromosomal pattern in every single cell, but also in diverse expressions of nearly one-sixth of the genes that men and women possess in common. And such differences of genetic expression occur not only in the reproductive tissues, but in virtually every tissue present in the human body. Uh, one interesting reference for this is a textbook recently published uh, that has to do with disease and the ways in which disease manifests differently in male and female organisms in the human species. And it's remarkable to see the size of this textbook and the number of different diseases that show up in different ways depending on one's sex. So this is purely a biological consideration. So gender is holistically manifest in the human organism, even if it's primarily by way of the generative abilities that we can tell whether someone is a man or a woman. Second, I'd like to insist on slightly modifying the language of Thomas and Aristotle and referring to the reproductive powers in either man or woman as cogenerative powers. Part of what we notice as distinctive of these powers in comparison with all other powers of the human being is that they are in themselves incomplete to their task. While our sensitive, rational, desiring, nutritive, and locomotive powers all enable us as individuals to exercise their respective activities, the male or female powers on their own cannot accomplish their natural end. In other words, these powers have a twofold object. Their ultimate object is the generation of another human being. Neither male nor female organs can be interpreted without reference to this end, hence these powers as cogenerative. Yet since they can't accomplish the end on their own, but only in relation with the opposite sex, these powers possess a more proximate object, which is activity, sexual activity, with the corresponding other. Here we see the co-aspect of these powers as generative. Now Aristotle and Aquinas would agree with this, but their flawed biology would incline them to see an imbalance in the co-relativity of these powers, with the male as fundamentally positive and the female as comparatively privative. And I don't want to rehash arguments regarding how Thomas sees the inequality of men and women on a biological level. Suffice it to say that to the extent that he sees human nature as calling for both sexes, this point is far better articulated through current biological understanding than through his own mistaken biology. Now, the ultimate object of the cogenerative powers reveals their essential unity. They're both ordered to one and the same thing, offspring, and in this way they can be regarded as a procreative unity. In some real way, only male and female powers together constitute the reproductive system in human nature. 
The proximate object of these powers reveals their difference and complementarity. In particular, on the side of woman, we see organs not only for the sake of gamete production and interaction with the male, but also for bearing and nourishing offspring. And I'll address this toward the end of the paper. If we were to draw an analogy to other powers in the human, we could compare generation with sensation. The various sensory powers, external and internal, are distinct, yet they work together in the person to present some physical reality. Analogously, the male and female cogenerative powers are distinct, yet they work together. The difference, of course, is that in their case, certain powers are always and only present in one organism, the woman, while others are always and only present in the man. Third point, because we're dealing with the distinction in powers as revealed by organs and organ systems, the gender difference has to be accounted for in terms of body and soul. Unlike other differences between us like color, bone structure, personality, and so on, which involve differences in degree among commonly held vegetative and sensory powers, the gender difference involves distinctions in the powers themselves possessed by one or another human organism. The gender difference, in other, in other words, is an organismic difference between humans, and it's the only organismic difference in our species. Only substantial form can account for differences in the very way matter is structured so as to present distinct functions and ends. On the material side, we see a kind of chronological priority by way of the two genetic patterns pointing to hormonal, structural, structural, and functional differences between the two organisms. And on the side of the soul, we reason to the correspondent sourcing of the male or female powers in the human substance. As the human soul is created individual, but always by way of expressing its being into proportionately designated matter, so the soul is created as sourcing powers proper to man or woman in the correspondingly disposed matter. And along these lines, just as the soul originates the sensory powers but could never be considered a sensing being in its own right, so when I speak of a soul as sourcing male or female powers, we can't infer from this that a male or female soul exists in its own right, but rather derivatively as the soul of a male or female person. We can consider the powers at issue here as integral parts of the human reproductive system. As lacking wholeness or completion in themselves, these distinct powers, far from positing two species of human, rather point all the more to the shared essence of man and woman. Consequently, while the gender difference stems in part from the soul, this difference by definition does not entail difference in essence or formal structure as such. Fourth point, the cogenerative powers are the only ones that are gratuitous from the standpoint of the organism's own life, maturity, and action. That is, humans can and have lived, even flourished, while freely refraining from exercising their sexual capacities. For as Thomas puts it, these powers primarily concern not the good of the individual, but the good of the species. I interpret this statement to mean two things. First, that the generative powers have as their ultimate object not one's own self, but another like oneself, an offspring. And in some way, the sexual powers look to human nature as a race. 
and in some sense as a complete race, presumably manifesting all that human nature can be capable of in time and place. But second, the generative powers as revealed in their proximate objects concern the completeness of the species in a structural sense, namely the species as man and woman, the two beings that together give us all of human nature's abilities in principle. The species is good is primarily that it exists, thus the continued reproduction of humans, but also that it be complete to begin with. And this completion is structurally present in the male-female duality. Fifth and finally, the cogenerative powers are the only ones that concern another human person as their proper object. And this is true both as regards the ultimate object, human child, but also as regards the proximate object, a human being of the opposite sex. Now these last two aspects are united, namely the gratuitousness of gender from the standpoint of one's own substance and the intrinsically personal dimension of gender in relation to sexual intercourse and human reproduction. For the normal use of the sexual powers involves human beings as wholes, as freely desiring and deliberative bodily agents, as persons. Since each person only possesses one or other set of the generative powers, and since their actualization depends on the personal agency of both self and other, there's a contingency built into one's exercise of these powers, a contingency that respects the nature of the person, of oneself and of the other. Now, I find this striking and somewhat mysterious. On the one hand, the human being as cogenerative posits its other naturally. We see the necessity for the, for the other from the standpoint of human nature's completion. And yet, on the other hand, these powers need never be actualized precisely because of the nature of the two as free persons. So from the reproductive point of view alone, it's hard not to see something mysterious about human gender in this light. It's as though for the human being, the minimum necessary to account for human nature as a whole is the mere knowledge that the other exists and that the two achieve meaningfulness in light of each other and that the two could actualize themselves procreatively even if they never in fact do so. So I think there are some interesting human, cultural, but also theological ramifications that come from this fact here. But let's linger on the fact that the human being as cogenerative posits its other. Uh, through his cogenerative powers, man intrinsically refers to woman and reveals himself as incomplete, at least procreatively, without her, and vice versa. Human nature, considered from this point, posits itself as a duality. So in order for human nature to exist, like any nature, it has to exist as a unified substance, an existing one. And like any sub-angelic nature, human nature must exist as an individual of the species, a one among others, as we've said. In most animal species, this individuational agency is accomplished through sexual reproduction, and especially in humans, through the decisive element of rational love. The agency of the parents presupposes their difference as cogenerative, and so in the parents we have individuality and otherness, but of a sort that is not constituted through generative division. Instead, it's demanded by the very structure of human nature as procreatively complete. 
A man and a woman, in other words, are individuals of the species, but they are not simply that. They are the integral relational principles of human nature in its procreative dimension. And I like the term principles to describe man and woman here since they are principles as causes when it comes to reproduction, but they're also principles kind of like elements of human nature in its procreative duality. What's striking here is that duality presupposes individuality, but for the sake of human nature's completion. Gender, we could say, is the primordial expression of human otherness, since it characterizes human beings as distinct from the soul through to the body. It shows up in the very structure of human nature as, as alterity, as otherness. The man-woman difference in this sense constitutes a greater alterity, a greater otherness than any other distinction among human individuals. Yet it also involves a greater bond of unity since the two become as one organism in procreation. So here's a, one of the crucial theses of my talk. If there's no other takeaway here is that gender is a metaphysical pointer to the fact that the primary meaning of human otherness is completion or wholeness through relationality. Gender is the metaphysical pointer to the fact that the primary meaning of human otherness is completion through relationality. That's a, a ver, an aversion or a notion of otherness, of difference, that it's crucial for us, I think, to, to recapture and, and to express anew because otherness has come to be seen so one-sidedly as sheer separation, difference. That human nature posits the genders as mutually necessary reveals man and woman as signs of the fact that no human is sheerly an individual or a mere instance of human personhood. Instead, human individuality shows up as constituent correlative principle of the nature as procreatively whole. So individuals of the species owe themselves to a structure that involves individuality and otherness, but as integral parts or principles within the nature itself. In short, Individuality comes about in human beings first and foremost in the context of correlative otherness, which is posited by human nature itself. Now it's illuminating to consider the fact that Aristotle and Thomas compare man and woman to odd and even. So they're trying to think of ways, comparisons, to the gender distinction, the gender difference, because there aren't easy comparisons to, to what kind of a difference it is. And especially for Aristotle and Thomas with their flawed biology, this was an even harder task. Uh, but one comparison they alight on is the difference between odd and even, right? Because men and women are not distinct species, but their difference is more than just an accidental difference like height or eye color or temperament or something like this. So, um, we find this analog in the mathematical realm of all places. Man and woman are kind of like odd and even. Why in the mathematical realm? And precisely it seems to me because here we're dealing with the reality of human nature as a curious quantitative reality, a unity in difference. Or to express it in a way that does better justice to the relation between real being and quantity, we're seeing how human nature is the exemplar for what shows up as odd and even in the numerical realm. 
Anytime a thing is considered as one, by that very fact, we can call forth another one. And here in achieving two, we have the decisive act that brings about all number. And interestingly, um, the ancient mathematicians, Euclid and Plato and others, often refer to two as a singular. They'll call it the dyad or a duality. And this is because two is a foundational principle for number because in two we first find otherness. And indeed, every number imitates two by being a kind of multitude or plurality. The one, unity, and the dyad that they're singled out shows them to be principles of number in such a way that on their basis we find the odd and the even in every number that exists. Odd is characterized by unity and its undividedness, and the even is characterized by two in its symmetrical divisibility. So Thomas comments that odd and even result from the very nature of number, while other distinctions among numbers are more accidental. Similarly, man and woman are attributes of, that result from human nature itself. And of course, man and woman transcend odd and even in significant ways. Uh, odd and even characterize all numbers by hearkening back to unity and duality, whereas male and female characterize humans not by hearkening back to some more primordial principle, but simply by themselves being the principles of human nature as a procreative duality. Second, uh, odd and even are static structures, simply following upon quantity, while man and woman as real beings dynamically, actively relate to each other so as to bring about human nature in its manyness. So I suggest that in these ways we can see man and woman as exemplars of these other sorts of difference. The highest and truest individuals in creation, after all, are human persons, composed of spiritual soul and body. And so it follows from this that the gender distinction is a liminal difference. You call it a liminal difference. It, it can't be reduced to other sorts of differences. Other sorts of differences can be helpful in illuminating it but not exhausting it. So you could say odd and even might be helpful in getting at the kind of difference man and woman is. Positive and negative electrical charges could be helpful in another way, um, and so on. Right? We, could, we could amass maybe a number of different sorts of differences to illuminate this single primary difference. Now, the last point I'd like to make is sort of the capstone of the argument, and it concerns pregnancy. If the human individual as gendered is in some sense incomplete, requiring the other gender for its procreative completion, we can go a step further to say that both genders are procreatively complete in view of their potential offspring. And this is especially seen in the woman whose organism is characterized not only as a part of the human duality, but also as symbiotically joined with the offspring, thus concretely indicating a triune structure in human completion. That is not just from a sociological or political point of view, but even from a metaphysical point of view, the human being can be most fully defined as familial, since fulfillment of all the human powers entails the structure man, woman, child. This is most visible in woman whose procreative powers extend to the man and to the child. In pregnancy, 
human bodiliness is most clearly seen as principle of individuation and communion. Now, interestingly, Aristotle seems to get at this in a couple comments on friendship in the Nicomachean Ethics. There he states that loving, rather than being loved, is most characteristic of friendship. And he gives as an indication of this fact that mothers would rather love their children than be loved by them. He later states that mothers love their children more than fathers do. Now, why does Aristotle single out the mother-child relationship in his discussions on friendship, especially given that elsewhere Aristotle holds women to be naturally inferior to men? I think the reason has to do with the fact that Aristotle maintains, as do many others, maintains a friend to be another self. And in the mother-child relationship, we get as close as possible biologically to one person being another. Indeed, and Aristotle wouldn't have known this to the extent that we do, but the unique organ that is the placenta could almost be thought of as an organ belonging to both mother and child organisms. It is more truly an organ of the child since it shares the child's DNA, but still it answers to a potency on the part of the maternal organism and does so anew every time pregnancy occurs. This is to say that the woman's organism in its metaphysical structure possesses a radically historical signification, allowing for a new organ as part of itself with each pregnancy. The individuation of the human species is thus written into the possibility of the woman's organism uniquely. Biologically, we know as well that the child naturally possesses DNA from the mother, but also that some of the child's DNA is transmitted into and retained by the maternal organism. What can we say about the mother-child relationship in pregnancy from a metaphysical point of view? I don't wish here to spend time arguing for the offspring as a human being person. Rather, I'll take that as a given, since the organism in utero is clearly alive with a human DNA structure of its own and acting on behalf of itself even to the point of forming a placenta in union with its mother for the sake of its own life. The fetus thus possesses the foundational hallmarks of a unique living substance and thus can only be a human person. Now given this status of the child in utero, I would argue that its relationship with the mother, analogous to the relationship between man and woman, is a liminal relationship. I mean that this relationship can be fruitfully illuminated by a variety of other more general sorts of relationship, but can't be exhausted by any one of them. For what we have here is one human person existing inside of another, dependent for its life processes on that other, with the maternal person literally giving of herself to the person in utero, such that the two are symbiotically joined. The organisms of both are codependent for the procreative possibility to be fully realized, by which I mean that the mother depends on the child and its placental structures to actualize herself as mother, and the child, of course, depends on the mother to continue to be at all. One current philosophical exploration of pregnancy offers the two following alternatives as ways of viewing the relationship between mother and fetus. There's the container-contained relationship, and the whole part relationship. Some, among them certain proponents of the fetus's right to life, argue more for the container-contained relationship. Others, typically those who would want to uphold mother's rights, 
but also the legitimacy of abortion, tend to argue for the whole part relationship. But both models in themselves are insufficient. It's true to say that in one respect, the mother is a container and the child is contained. It's also true to say that in another respect, the mother is a whole and the child a part. But as Aristotle notes in the categories and the metaphysics, there are many ways in which one thing can be in another. Thus, there are many ways of containing and being contained. My beer is in the mug. I see your father in you. The soul is in the body, and so on. As well, there are many ways of being wholes and parts. The limb is part of the tree. The executive branch is part of the government. The soul is a part of the person. My wife is a part of me, in some sense. We speak that way. So to simply speak of the child as contained by the mother, or alternatively as part of the mother, and leave it at that, is not to do justice to the situation. It would be better to begin with the fact that pregnancy involves a unique type of relationship between human persons. And I think there's a great insight from Carol Watiwa in one of his earlier philosophical essays, where he states that human community always involves some way in which one human participates in the humanity of another. And I'd suggest that pregnancy, at one level, is the paradigmatic instance of humans participating in each other's humanity. I don't wish to overstate the case. There are certainly ways in which other sorts of human relationship are more important and humanly fulfilling. But at the biological level, which is a human level, pregnancy is unmatched as a participation in another's humanity. The mutual participation is asymmetrical, since it involves mature consciousness on the part of the mother and at most sentient consciousness on the part of the child. It involves biological offering from the mother and reception in the child. Still, these participations organically entail relationships that persist throughout the lifespan of each. We could also say that the very structure of love, as Aquinas articulates it in the Summa, is biologically foreshadowed in pregnancy. Aquinas speaks of love as a union that naturally entails a mutual indwelling of the lover and the beloved and the beloved and the lover. In pregnancy, we see this. The mother is like a lover giving herself to the child. The child is like the beloved impacting the mother by nothing less than its presence within her. In another sense, the mother is like the beloved by virtue of bringing about all that the child needs and satisfying it completely. The child, like a lover, radically needs its mother and depends on her for its fulfillment. Metaphysically, the relationship between human mother and child is unique because of the spiritual soul-body composition in each person. Because the person's principle of being is spiritual, human bodiliness, and indeed the human being, is more its own, more incommunicable than any other natural substance. And in this sense, the mother and her child in utero are more distinct than all other maternal and in utero organisms. At the same time, because of the uniquely intense unity of the soul and body in humans, the fact that the mother and child are indeed biologically joined means that their whole persons are in greater relation than are the organisms of any other mother and child. 
If there's one word that best captures the pregnant mother and child in utero relationship, I propose that it's communion. There is literally a union with another like oneself that organismically transcends any other sort of union. In fact, a rather traditional way of referring to pregnancy is being with child, which comes close to what I'm getting at. A bun in the oven, while catchy, doesn't capture much of anything. It's true that we typically think of communing with another as activity involving conscious desire, emotion, thought, and love. And I don't want to take away from this more fully actual sense of the word communion. But the communion in pregnancy is not just a biological analog of a higher, more deliberate relationship. Like everything lower in human life, it's a natural avenue toward the higher. What do I mean? Well, for example, compare sensation and reason. Sensation is lower, reason is higher. Sensation is like reason in that it's a form of apprehending reality. But sensation isn't only like reason at a lower level, it's also a natural avenue toward the life of reason. We can't even imagine reasoning without the life of sensation. If we were angels, we could, but we're rational animals. Similarly, I'd say that the reality of pregnancy is a natural phenomenon of communion in human life, without which higher forms of relationship become difficult, if not impossible. Now, I obviously don't mean that every human or every woman has to be actually pregnant in order to enter a life of thoughtfulness and love. What I mean is that the presence of pregnancy in human life establishes a paradigmatic form of relationship which has effects on all those involved such that they have some sense of what it could mean for human beings to be in relationship with each other. Clearly, all of us in existence are the offspring of pregnancies. We know more and more how biologically and psychologically the relationship with the mother is a crucial dimension of each person's natural history and future tendencies. But we also know from this relationship what it's like to be a mother to another, even in a non-physical way. And for us men, we know from this relationship what it's like to be a father to another. Human fatherhood, even while it instigates motherhood in some way, is in another way predicated upon it, since the mother's connection with the child is more evident and primary. As a final thought, the notion of pregnancy as communion bears special meaning for a Christian, given the sacramental communion that constitutes the source and summit of divine life in us. This is the other instance of one person existing in another, physically. It is the paradigmatic relationship of flesh and love in human life. In transcending the natural relationship, the Eucharist brings together dimensions of both mother and child. Christ dwells in us like the child, but gives himself totally to us like the mother. And like the mother, he perfects us in being and life, but like the child, he is the new life in us. I had hoped to think more about theological and cultural ramifications of all this, but I didn't have the time. So I'll leave that to you and would welcome any thoughts or concerns. Thanks very much for your time and attention.